0: Hi there, this is Steve, but this isn't the beginning of the show. Before we begin, I invite you to check out my free masterclass called The Surprising Path to Excellence. If you're an entrepreneur, business owner, or leader with financial responsibility in your company, you'll definitely not want to miss this one. I'll cover how a winning strategy combined with operational excellence drives higher cash flow and firm value. You can watch it for free at cultivar.com. I'll also link it in the show notes below. I hope you enjoy it. You're listening to the Strategic Financial Leadership Podcast, a podcast for entrepreneurs, business leaders, and professionals who want to elevate their game and reach new levels of abundance and success. I'm Steve Coffin, the founder of Coltvar, and I've spent my entire career growing and turning around companies, and together we'll explore the latest happenings in the world of strategy and finance. Let's do this. Before we begin, just remember that this podcast is for educational purposes and the information shared herein should not be construed as legal, tax, or investment advice. Check out our terms and conditions in the show notes to learn more. Now on to the show. Alok, welcome to Strategic Financial Leadership. I'm excited to have you today as a guest and um, I have a lot of questions for you.
1: I'm looking forward to it, Steve.
0: So I guess I, I always like to understand where people come from. Um, obviously you're on this, this particular journey in your life, but I want to understand more about your path. And so you graduated from Emory University and then you went on to get an MBA at Harvard. Were you always interested in business?
1: Uh, you know, Steve, that's a great question. I think initially, interestingly, when I went to Emory for undergrad, I started out as pre-med. And part of that was growing up in an Indian household. Uh, you either have to do pre-med or engineering uh, in order to satisfy your parents. So you you start in one of those areas and then you kind of work from there. So I completed the pre-med curriculum, but what was, uh, what was funny there was that I really, I I did fine in the academics, but the moment at which you put me into a setting with either a cadaver, which we had to do in in first year biology or anything associated with blood, I would pass out. So it just didn't seem like this was going to be the right field. (laughs) <laughs> for me sure. to go and try to be a physician, if I can't hold my water when when running into those situations, so I pivoted to business, or at least explored doing business. And you know, my parents were good with it to say, "Let me try this for a few years." Without really any background in business or having family members in business, quite frankly, it was it was a new field for me and and for our whole family. So. That was the genesis there. And then obviously a lot happened from there, but uh that was a bit of the origin story um coming out of high school and going through undergrad and so on.
0: So I mean, why did you choose business though? I mean, there's so many other options that you could, you know, pursue. What was it about business that got you interested enough to to go down that path?
1: Yeah, you know, initially what got me interested was that for me I, I loved being around people and I'd always been a bit of a I you know, I would say this in a positive term, but a bit of a hustler in terms of I, I started selling stuff in our neighborhood from the sixth grade. And so I was constantly kind of hacking around with effectively buying and selling, just effectively, like the simple way to put markets. What were things that people wanted? What could I uh, provide? How could I get it for them? That type of stuff. And so I had always had a bit of that interest. I never really wanted to put anything formal around it. And so the business school kind of seemed like a good place. I was also typically I was, I was very good at math. I could do numbers really quickly. And so it just kind of by default, I did not want to finish out my college career doing like a bio or organic chemistry or physics. All of those things kind of made me say, I have no desire to do this. I had a number of friends that were in the business school at that time. And you know, part of it was social, part of it was academic, and part of it was just exploratory me just trying to figure out like what is, what is this? And I'm pretty sure I can get a job after a business school. So let's try this.
0: And what kind of student were you? I mean, did you hit the books hard or were you like, Hey, I'm going to pursue this path, but I'm also going to have fun and not take it too seriously.
1: You know, what's interesting is I was two completely different types of students in school. Um, my first two years was probably more of the latter, which was I'm going to enjoy the social life of college, I'm fairly good academically, and so I'll do fine in my classes. And for the most part, I just really needed to hit a certain mark so that my parents didn't force me to come back home. And that was, the, that was years one and two. Well, in year three, in my junior year, I, um, I was diagnosed with non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. And so I ended up having to take a year off to deal with cancer treatments. And I was actually treated on campus. So there's a hospital there at Emory as well, And so I would have classmates coming to the hospital, which is not really a a fun to have if you're trying to go out there and dating and to have people come and visit you in the hospital is not a great look. But I had some great friends and went through all my treatments at Emory. Coming out of that experience obviously gave me a lot of time to think and reflect. Coming out of the experience, I was just committed to figuring out what I was capable of. I didn't know how much time I had as well. So in my mind, I was like, well, why don't I just go hard at these books and let's let's really get into the academics. And, and from that point forward, I just I did really well from an academic perspective and pretty well from a career perspective. But I just had a completely different outlook on life that I don't think was it was a more of a shock therapy than anything else that got me there. You know, obviously through that uh, medical experience.
0: Well, I, I think that's interesting. You know that you went through that experience. That must have been really tough and really shaped you. I as I as just listening to Steve Jobs' uh, commencement speech again, I like to listen to that every once in a while. And mm-hmm. um, and he talks in there. He's talking to the Stanford class, and in there he says probably one of the greatest things in life is death, and death is this change agent, and it helps us to remember, hey, we're gonna die, so why not pursue what you're passionate about? Because life is short. So I guess along those same lines, like when you were diagnosed with this cancer, you know, did you take on that attitude where you're like, okay, I'm going to just pursue what I love or like, how, how did that change your perspective on life and like what you were going after?
1: Yeah, that's a great question, man. I I think the, I I would not say I was as intentional because keep in mind, I was 19 at the time. Sure. So I, I was not as intentional. What was super clear to me through the, the cancer experience is that I am very mortal. A lot of friends, uh, when I say friends, obviously, I met a number of people at that time that also had cancer. You tend to end up surrounding yourself with other people with shared experiences. So being in the hospitals and being in the in the infusion wards where you're getting your treatments, all that stuff just puts you around an ecosystem of folks that are that also have cancer. A majority of those kids died. And so for me, it was crystal clear that my mortality was, um, was real. So I kind of lost that childish uh, or that childlike uh, kind of exuberance as if I'm invincible, that was gone. Mm-hmm. Um, I think what it also did was to some extent, it did motivate me. I don't know if I was directly motivated to say, Hey, well, I'd cancer still so let me go, you know, kind of suck the marrow out of life. I don't think it was that clean. But what it did say to me was that, OK, there are some things I'm curious about, about myself and about what I can do to contribute. And I definitely was still interested in the hospital systems. And so for me, I was like, all right, well, let me go and try to do those things um, and do them in a way that I hadn't done them before, which was committing myself fully. Um, my parents will always say because they, they I think their experience through that was significantly harder than mine um, as a parent of a child going through it. Um, But they would always say that you just became, it was two different people. And so I just kind of started powering through, you know, one by one. It wasn't this master plan. It was just each thing I got into, I just kind of said, well, what am I capable of? And what can I contribute? And I just kind of used that philosophy to go forward. I will say the negative impact for me around that time was that over the course of four or five years post-treatment and going to a lot of funerals, I did become a bit numb on death. Um, I definitely have become a bit numb. And, and that stayed with me t- today. It doesn't mean I don't care, but it's, it's just this weird sensation of numbness that I don't really, uh, I don't have huge emotions when people in our families die. I do care. I do. Um, it does impact me, but it's just a little different.
0: And what do you mean by numb? Like, cause, cause obviously you have feelings and you're not some like sociopath, right? Right. <laughs> um, but it's, I mean, ha- explain more about what you mean by that. I think
1: as I, and I, I don't have all the answers. I think how as I reflected upon it in, in my own process is that if you witness um, somebody passing kind of every three months, every four months, you're going to a funeral and that somebody is a 22 year old or a 16 year old or 18 year old all young people, your body tends to form, or at least your mental side forms some calluses around it um, where you get a little bit more accustomed to it. And I don't necessarily mean that in a good way. And so the numbness to me was that when I would hear about it, especially at that time, your brain goes into, okay, where's the funeral? How are the parents, anything I can do? And, and, you you know, rinse and repeat that cycle. And that happened a lot. Um, And so I actually removed myself from the world of uh, being a counselor at camps for kids with cancer for all of this stuff. I took myself out of that world at about 25. I was diagnosed at 19, um, so about six years later, I just said, "I can't do this anymore." Yeah, because you know, I just can't. I can't do it anymore. I've, I've got to move on a bit. But I think that the numbness stayed with me a bit. And when people pass, I've never really felt like it was over for them. And it might have been a defense mechanism for me at that time. I just kind of felt like, okay, well, they've moved on, sure. you know? And so my emotions are muted or a bit more muted on those types of things because that's just the way I think.
0: Yeah. And what a powerful experience to, you know, shape your mindset and, and to help you, you know, view the world in a totally different perspective. So as you're going through this, you, you graduate from college, you go on to get your MBA and then you get into, um, consulting. So you, you had a, a few different roles as a senior consultant and then you're a manager over at Bain. Talk to me about that whole experience and what did you learn from your time advising organizations?
1: I probably learned more from the people around me uh, than I did necessarily to each individual case. I definitely earned, learned some things on each case, but it was the people around me. It, there was a mentor of mine who had said to me early, uh, kind of right when I graduated from college, he said, you know you you really want to spend a good early portion of your career doing well and both not necessarily financially, but he was like, really put yourself around the best of the best in your own field um, and learn from that experience and, and I took him up on that almost blindly. And so I, I started to put myself in places where folks were just significantly faster. I the analogy I use is, is that, most of the people I spent my career around early in my career um, and many to this day, they run on a Pentium chip, which I guess is old school for some of your listeners, but they run on a much faster processor than mine is. Um, <laughs> I just work my processor to the max. You know, so I put myself around, whether it was in consulting at Stock Camp or at, at Kurt Salmon or at Bain or whether it was in business school, I got to see what a faster processor looks like. And how it operates and how fast it can go and how quickly people can kind of put lots of disparate things together, specifically in an environment of business, and be able to make sense out of it. And that's ultimately what consulting taught me was, how do you take what can feel incredibly daunting? Um, Let's say X company wants to grow internationally in these five countries, but those places have uh, a slew of competitors as well as substitutes. Like, what do you do? And instead of being overwhelmed by that question, how to break it down into pieces and go very methodically in terms of what you can control and what you can't. Sure. And I think that framing was really helpful to allow a slower processor that I have to be able to compete with the faster processors. Because uh, no matter how fast someone's processor is, they can't change the environment around them. They might be able to analyze it faster, but they can't change it. And so that's where, that's a ton of what I got out of the consulting experience.
0: So you had this great experience there and and I'm sure you're exposed to a lot of things in business and then you go on and you leave consulting and you co-found SmartPath. So tell me more about what led you to start SmartPath and what does SmartPath do? What's, what's its value prop and and what does it offer to the world?
1: Sure, sure. What really led me to, to start SmartPath was during the great recession, um, 2008 2009 a bunch of people in the areas i grew up in they struggled with money and if you recall at that time uh they struggled because we were going through obviously this massive housing crisis and values were dropping and you know people were getting boarded up and foreclosed on it and you it. and if you recall at that time there was this big kind of bifurcation of of where to lay the blame it was wall street versus main street you know in, in, in typical kind of political speak, it was Wall Street had created all of these alternative products for uh, home ownership that put the user at risk and they, there's definitely a case to be made for that, no doubt about it, but at the same time, Steve I, I saw a lot of people around me just making bad choices sure. they were doing things that were extending themselves far beyond they just kind of said that well, housing prices are going to keep rising and that was the end of their analysis and what had happened for me as I Kind of talked to my wife about it, and kind of stomping around the place, saying this is really unfair. Folks did not have the background or the knowledge because they didn't learn this stuff in high school. Personal finance is kind of if you're not taught by your parents or you don't learn it in school, it isn't actually intuitive. It's a little bit more challenging than that. And so I I quit my job in January of 2010, and I just started teaching. There was no real business plan. I started with six people in a room, and I taught for four hours. And the following weekend, 20 people came and I would rent out space in downtown Atlanta for anybody to come. And these sessions would get packed and I would just produce all the materials for people. I wrote all the content and was just trying to take what can feel daunting for people and make it a little bit easier. How do I make it a little bit easier? And so that was, that, that was the genesis of the business.
0: Now, leaving your company. Okay, so you you were in consulting. I imagine you're doing pretty well and you're you're with a bigger organization. Mm-hmm. And then you talk to your wife and you say, Hey, I'm gonna leave and I wanna teach people about financial management. What was her uh initial response? And I mean, how did you have the courage to take such a big step? Because uh, you know, when I was in business school, a lot of people talk about entrepreneurship and I worked at Ernst and Young, I did the same thing. I I left there <laughs> to go off and, and start cultivar. And I remember so many people are like, oh, you're going to burn bridges. What are you doing? How are you going to like afford health insurance? I'm like, oh. I mean, it's like, it's funny the questions that they'd ask. It seemed like a big, you know, life decision, but it, it wasn't really because I knew I was super passionate about it and I just went forward. But tell me more about your experience.
1: Yeah, there was probably some similarities there. I never looked at me leaving the consulting world as some big, massive risk because I always knew I could go back. Mm-hmm. Always, I felt, I've always felt employable. Um, I believe that I can help organizations. Um, I'm pretty good at it. I enjoy doing it. Um, I'd like to think of myself as a good teammate. And so, all of those things were were available. In fact, my mentor when I was consulting at Bain was like, "You could always come back." But he actually encouraged me to go scratch the itch. Hmm. If you have an itch, you're going to need to scratch it. Otherwise, you're going to be a it's going to be a real problem staying here and always wish. And he had done the same thing in his career. He had gone, and left, come back. And so, I never really looked at it as this like massive leap. Now, that being said, being a personal finance person um, and growing up in the environment I grew up in, I had saved for these decisions. My wife and I never really changed our lifestyle dramatically through the first 10 years of my career. We paid off all the student loans. We kind of did everything I teach. And so with that, I put myself in a position where my cost base wasn't really that high. So to meet that, I didn't have to make nearly as much as what I was making.
0: And I didn't have
1: this kind of endless sense of make as much money as you can for some, I don't know, some end goal. It, it was, that was never a driver for me. Um, and it never really has been since I was sick. I've never been driven by money. And so with that, all that backdrop made it actually a lot easier for me to step aside and not think of it as some final and big decision. It was a decision for 2010.
0: Sure. That yeah, was a decision. And you weren't trying to figure out all the details. What does five years, 10 years look like? You are just like, hey, yeah, I'm following my heart. I know like I could always go back if I needed to go back, but you just went for it.
1: Yeah, I just went for it. And what un- ultimately ended up happening was that, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm still a business guy. So I thought through business plans and this and that, but what ultimately ended up happening is, is that I meandered my way through a decade, even starting another company. And I did that just by taking lefts and rights. There wasn't a, Man, I, if I'm not here at this time, then I'm going to do this, then I'm going to do this. That's felt like too much pressure. Even to this day, I have some ideas of where we're going to be in the next three to five years, but those are typically conversations for like over a beer. They're not anything like that's going to, I'm going to get fixated on and that's going to guide me. The market and the environment change so quickly um, that, that innovation happens to me a lot in the moment. And, and you've got to be willing to be that adaptable. So locking into something of, if I'm not here in three years, or we're going to be here in five years, those are good to put up on a whiteboard, but I don't necessarily, they don't necessarily like motivate me or drive me or anything like that. I'm driven by the mission. And that mission is always going to be relevant in my lifetime.
0: Sure. So how do you reduce financial stress for Main Street? Because I mean, that's what SmartPath is all about. Like you offer tools and education and other things like that. Um, explain more about that. Yeah. I
1: think that there's a few foundational elements that, that even that we've learned through the years on this is, is number one, most people want to be better with money, but they don't actually want to learn it or they don't want to become a financial expert. They have no desire to do that. They have other interests in their life that quite frankly are far more interesting. So the way that you help somebody in that situation, and you can, it's akin to, to fitness or anything else is give them a plan help them figure out what the next thing is to focus on, the next one thing, and encourage and inspire and hold them accountable to doing that. Instead of making it the 10 different things, I got to pay off loans, I got to pay off debt. What about buying a house? My kids got to go to college. All of those things become jumbled in someone's mind, which leads them to do nothing. Mm -hmm. And instead, if you can narrow them in on one thing, just do this one thing, you'll start to see that they will make their own progress. And that's been a real big winner for us is being very intentional and deliberate about removing the answer of it depends. Steve, if you ask me a financial question in some situation you're in, I'm not going to start with it depends because mm-hmm. it doesn't. Most of the time, for most people, it doesn't. Um, and so I'm going to help and say, this is where I think you need to go. And this is why. And, and I think that that has taken a lot of the stress out for people is because they're like, I've got an expert telling me go this direction. I'm going to go this direction. And I'm going to execute against it and I can block out everything else for right now.
0: Now, do you think it's possible to, you know, change this mindset that's been so instilled in so many people, especially in America where 70% of our GDP is made up of consumer spending. Where people are just constantly being bombarded with messages and imaging and marketing and all the stuff to buy, buy this, buy that, buy this this is how you're going to be happy is if you have this or if you have that too hey you should be a little bit more fiscally responsible and really think about the long term here is it hard to to change that mindset in people because it seems like it's a mindset shift you know behavior pattern shifts i mean it's it's a lifestyle change right
1: it's a lifestyle change and it's more to your earlier point i mean 70% of our gdp is driven by consumer spending so if you don't have the money to spend you know someone's going to help you borrow it because the machine of driving GDP growth year over year that machine has already left the station mm-hmm. that that machine's not going to turn back around. we are not going to become a net exporter of goods overnight we We don't typically want government spending to drive all of our economic growth, so we're left with this scenario in capitalism we're left with the scenario that okay, we need a lot of people to spend money sure, and so if that's the case, i don't see people pulling back on the products you need, making it easier to spend kind of the one click Amazon button to get that product again on a, on a cycle, the recurring subscription model, it's such a powerful business model. Um, and it's such a healthy business model. I don't see us moving away from that. So I think that, you know, ultimately the, the, the headwinds are going to remain. Now our, our vision and kind of our mission is, okay, I'm not here to try to say, well, let's turn around those headwinds. The headwinds are here to remain. I'm just going to accept that for a moment. How can, we make the, how can we level the playing field of people having access to support that'll help them work through those headwinds? And for most de- generations, it's been the wealthy who have access to that. I just want to make it for everybody. And then at that point, Steve, if you and I both have access to that and you choose to take it uh, and I don't, that's on me. But let's at least make more equitable access to the support, to the tools, to the coaching, to all the components that can help people face those headwinds.
0: Now, and I think that's great. And when it comes to personal finance, do you think Mm -hmm. it's more of a earning problem people deal with or a spending problem? Hey, real quick. I hope you're enjoying this episode. If you're an entrepreneur or business leader and you want to take your game to the next level, or you want to avoid being crushed out there during these uncertain times, be sure to check out our free masterclass called the surprising path to excellence by visiting cultivar.com or through our boosting your financial IQ app. I'll link this in the show notes as well. I'm also offering some freebies. So be sure to check it out now back to the show.
1: I think it's a uh, little of both, but I think specifically, I think wages have been flat over the last 30 to 35 years and costs have gone up. So that equation is a bad one for anyone. Uh So and there is a massive earnings problem, uh, the minimum wage being kind of the one that's most front and center for, for people in the media. But there's been a massive earnings problem across the span, with the exception of the people at the top whose earnings continue to skyrocket. And so, yeah, I mean, I, I would say that you can solve some of this with income. We'd have to look at how that impacts the profitability of the businesses that would then pay a higher income. Does that mean a reduction in the number of jobs? Do we have a more sustainable unemployment rate that's more like 7 8 9%? Uh, to be determined. But I think that costs going up and costs that you don't control going up, an example of that would be healthcare. More high deductible plans means more money out of people's pockets.
0: Sure.
1: With wages staying flat is like the definition of unprofitability at the household level. Yeah.
0: And, and it's interesting because, you know, I've worked in different ecclesiastical like positions and, you know, part of that is, is helping some people that are in need that are socioeconomically challenged. And um, what I found is that sometimes it was less of a, a spending problem, which most people think, Right. Um, mm-hmm. It was more of an earning problem because you know sometimes I would look at people spending and, and trust me, there's some people you know they they can barely you know cover their rent or they can't cover their rent but they have the latest iPhone and the newest clothes and the you know expensive shoes, all that stuff, right? But they oftentimes it was like, wow, you know, you're trying to get by on this thirty five thousand dollar budget. Um, mm-hmm. I don't know how much you can cut, and maybe you need to go and. And improve your earning potential. And I I think Warren Buffett, I was was watching this clip the other day and he was talking about inflation. And he said, one of the best hedges against inflation is your earning potential, is investing in yourself. What are your thoughts on that?
1: Um, I think he is right. And I think it's kind of, uh, you know, who am I to say that Warren Buffett's not right on something? But that being said, the way I look at it is we use a number called 55. 55 is the number of hours per week you want to spend trying to earn money if you're in this situation where it's hard to save money on a month-to-month basis. Um, And so it's not 40 though, it's not 40. And so in that extra 15, let's say you work a job for 40, that extra 15 could be selling stuff on Facebook Marketplace. Mm -hmm. It could be a lot of different things, but it's got to be pushed to, you've got to be at that level and you don't have to do 55 for the rest of your life, but you're going to have to do it for a period of time to get yourself out from being always behind. Sure. Some people take to that and some people don't. The other thing is we really highly encourage on the expending side is is that you're going to have to rethink how you live. And I don't mean in terms of like iPhones and stuff. I'm talking about your rent and your mortgage and what, you know, you see companies like Star City doing more co-living structures where shared kitchen and bath, other people are living, you know, you have your bedroom and your bathroom and that. I think we're going to see more of that to try to offset the fact that people can't afford rents. They definitely, as rents continue to rise, it's very difficult in the major metros. And so I think that a lo- each of these components is going to have to change a bit. But the one that, the hu- that individuals can control is how much time am I investing towards earning? And if I can up that number a bit, a lot of stuff gets cleared up, at least for a period of
0: time. Sure. I like that. I like that number of 55. And I, I think that that is a great perspective, right? It doesn't have to be forever, number one. And number two, you know, it's not limited to some magic number of 40, like 40 hours a week, but it's also, it doesn't have to be 90 hours a week, right? Nope.
1: And I know, and, and look, I, I'm, I'm in my mid forties and I still work more than 55 hours. Now, obviously I have my own business. Um, but that being said, I don't think I ever have worked less than that. And it does not all of a sudden mean if I work 55, that I don't have work-life balance or whatever you want to call that. I have a great relationship with my wife. My son and I are very close. You know, we have family. We do trips. Those kind of things can still happen. You just have to be very meticulous about your schedule and maybe, for me at least, using from 7 a.m. to noon on a Saturday as work time. Sure. Because by noon, that, by that point, I have a teenage son that he's finally up and actually moving like a normal human. Uh, and so, you know, so it's not like I missed out any time with him. My wife gets to kind of do her thing, and I don't, I feel filled. Sure. You know, I feel complete. And that, like, okay, we have the whole afternoon together. I think that folks have to kind of understand that those are the, the trade offs they're going to have to make, given the fact that we have these headwinds that you and I talked about earlier. Those headwinds are not going to change. At well, least I don't see them changing.
0: And let's talk about those headwinds. So, what impacts are you seeing um, in the finance sector or just in overall life from uh, COVID 19 from a, a financial perspective?
1: Uh, I think, I, I don't think COVID 19 has presented anything new. I think it's just put a light on a lot of the stuff that already existed. Um, the biggest challenges that folks have. I would say education, healthcare, and communication costs have all gone up exponentially far faster than wages. And that's a major headwind. So the, it, I don't know if you may recall, but in the, the 80s and 90s, like the average cell phone bill, or sorry, the average phone bill of a house was like 30 bucks, 25 bucks. Mm-hmm. Today it's $160. And I constantly let people know your conversations are not five times better. You're still talking to the same people about the same stuff. Sure. It's just that happens to be you got four your smartphones in the household and you're on a family plan and you're paying $160, $180. So that is one cost. The healthcare piece is another huge one. Um, companies have not been able to absorb the risk, especially given that you know healthcare is a struggle on, on multiple dimensions. So they are pushing, you know, they're going to move towards high deductible plans with HSAs. This is a good thing to have the HSA, but a high deductible plan. For a family with any sort of chronic medical condition is an additional 100 to $200 a month in costs. Where is that going to come from? Sure. And then education is the third one, which is, you know, we went from even out of state colleges being $30,000 a year, which I thought was high to now $75,000 a year. You have a $300,000 bill for a kid to go out of state for college. If you stay in state, even with uh, local scholarships, you're still talking about 15 grand. Sure. These are big, big numbers. So to get educated and to be healthy and to talk to somebody, all those costs have gone up. That is a, a headwind that I just is just very difficult to, to battle. And the pandemic simply exposed it. The pandemic made it to where, wow, you know, OK, these are really, really big numbers. And when every when the music stops, which is what I think has happened during the pandemic and everybody gets to kind of look around and see how folks are doing because they have nothing else to do. They realize that, man, it's a huge difference from one person versus the other in any given community
0: absolutely. What's your thought on on this and, and I know neither of us have a crystal ball about you know the economic direction of of anything right I mean it's so hard to predict markets and and how the economy is going to roll forward, but do you have concerns about inflation um, and just rising levels of debt moving forward into the future
1: um, Yes and no, I have, I do have concerns about rising levels of debt. Um, and part of those may be, may get curtailed with default rates going up. Um, and inflation, I'm probably not a great economist to be able to say kind of where I see that. I obviously see rising prices across the board right now, how that'll play out kind of, you'll have to ask an economist. The area that I have the biggest concern of um, the crystal ball, if you will, is where, uh, Technology will replace human labor and how easy it is for that to happen in a lot of different sectors where people are um, dependent on those jobs. And are we able to retrain fast enough? And are we be able to, you know, provide some support mechanisms for the individuals who are going to be impacted by this shift? And I think that fundamental shift is one that kind of goes under the radar because it's much more of a long tail. You don't see it happening tomorrow, but if we lift our head five years from now, because it happens so slow, it just like any sort of growth, if the growth is happening fast, everybody looks at it. If it's happening super slow, they're like, oh, it's not a big deal because I can't see it. Sure. Uh, and that's one where I'm really concerned about the growth because the majority of the sectors that we help in are sectors that are going to be impacted. Manufacturing, you know, retail, um, yeah, food service. These are These are sectors that are going to be impacted. They are going to have fewer people employed and I presumably higher profitability for those organizations in the midterm. And that that's that concerns me. I don't have a solution. That just that
0: concerns me. Sure. And I mean, I've noticed that quite a bit. I mean, whether it's going to Home Depot and, you know, once all the lines were filled with cashiers checking you out, now it's computers or you know, mm-hmm. even with the airlines, you go to the airport and um, now it's just it's a backdrop, right? You're not even checking in really. So I mean, there's there's a lot of things that are being digitized and auto, automated. And you know, I remember taking this executive ed program, and this guy came in and he is speaking about fintech and different things. And he he said something very important that stuck with me. He said, "Make sure that you are building the skills right now that you'll need in ten years, not just the skills that you'll need right now." Which is kind of hard because. It's like, how do you build skills for something that doesn't even exist, that can exist, you know, in 10 years. But also, I mean, to your point, there are things where we need to retool ourselves and retool the workforce just so it's, it's ready for the future. That's
1: right. That, that's right. And then, in, in, and you mentioned fintech, that's an area where there's another major concern that fintech can be really powerful where the challenge comes in is when it starts to remove friction in places you would prefer to have friction. Mm -hmm. So, you know, to make it easier to borrow money, I'm not actually sure that's a good thing. I can definitely point to an example where it is a good thing. I can point to a single individual. But on the whole, you know, you typically, and and I was growing up, we used to have this like jar and this jar had, um, it had little Debbie cakes in there, which I was like, I loved any of them, pecan rolls, you name it. And my mom used to put this jar all the way up like kind of above the fridge and the cabinet above the fridge, which basically created friction for me having to get up on a small ladder, go up there and get it, which I still did and got in trouble for, but there was friction. If she had laid out little Debbie's all over the table, but told me that I'm not only allowed to have one a day, you're putting a lot of onus on me to have the discipline to not eat all of them. Sure. And I... You know, I think the same thing happens with 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 finance. People can justify, we see this all the time. People can justify just about every independent decision, whether it's borrowing money, whether it's buying this thing, whether it's buying this car, it's always going to get, they can justify their way through it. The easier you make that through fintech, where if I'm one or two buttons away from being able to borrow, I'm not sure that that's a good long-term solution for anything, Sure, but We'll have to see, you know, and I can understand that there's a different contrarian perspective on that, and, and I can respect that. But it's hard for me to see how those things play out without other elements that help drive better discipline. And those clearly are not being innovated fast enough, or at least not at the speed of fintech innovation around credit.
0: I absolutely agree. I think that friction can help slow certain things or just make us be a little bit more intentional with some of these decisions that I can carry with them big financial <laughs> implications, right?
1: Yes. So, yeah. Be intentional. Exactly. You got to think about it a little bit. Now you don't.
0: Exactly. You borrow, borrow first, think second. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so let me let me ask you this: When it comes to helping people, like I, I know you mentioned your approach where you say, "Hey, look, you know, just focus on one thing," but how do you like go about helping somebody or educating them? Like, what do you educate them on? Are you teaching them about stocks and bonds and amortization schedules and you know, and how saving money works. I mean, talk to me about your approach and like, where do you even start? Because it's such a big topic and it can it splinter off in so many different directions.
1: That's right, that's right. Yeah, well, we have an overarching philosophy that has a clear set of steps. And so if you're on step one and we're, you're asking me questions about step six, you know, I will let, we will let people know that we're happy to discuss those with you, but we're just doing this for entertainment purposes at that point, mm-hmm. um, just because you're interested, but you're on step one. So if you want to work on step six, when you're on step one, that's up to you. But what we do have is a very clear laid out process that says you should do these things in order. And then you want to educate yourself on the step that you're on. You are not missing anything by, oh my God, the world is passing me by because people are becoming crypto millionaires and I'm missing out. You're not missing that, right? You just happen to read a few articles on it. And so we are very focused on helping people kind of in the step they're on. Now within that, That And that helps kind of avoid the fact that do I need to teach about everything? Within that, the majority of our teaching is around helping people understand what their options are and then encouraging them to pick one of them. So taking what might feel, and this is where my consulting experience has kind of been really helpful, is taking somebody something that might feel like there's hundreds of options. I'll give you an example, student loans. How do I pay off my student loans? Well, if you go by the payment plans There's like 37 options Mm. to pay off student loans. That's incredibly daunting. But the reality with student loans is there's only three. There's the option of I'm going to be on a payment plan and then I'll figure out which one's the best for me. I'm going to use some sort of loan forgiveness program or I don't care what the payment plan is. I'm going to pay these off as quick as I can and I'm going to live like a miser until I do. And if you can pick one of those avenues, either I'm going to be on a payment plan and I'm fine with it, I'm going to take a forgiveness strategy or what we call the crush it strategy. I'm going to crush these things. Once you pick one of those, the world of options you have at that point narrow down significantly. Sure. And then you just pick what's right for you there. So it's really about bringing it up a level and helping people us understand what their options are so that they can make a choice. We're not going to make a choice for them. But what we can do is narrow down the world to say, you know what, these 10 things that kind of all have come at you thinking that they're different. They're not. They're the same. They just have a different color wrapper on them, but they're the same. And so let's just treat these all as one bucket. And I think when people get the confidence or the, the support that narrows down all that complexity, it can be incredibly empowering that, yep, I'm going to crush it or nope, I'm in a situation to take a forgiveness plan or nope, I, I got it. I'm going to be on a payment plan, but I'm going to be done in 10 years or I'm done in eight years. That's just an incredibly empowering decision. Um, and far less daunting, and that's the role that we play with our education.
0: Well, that's interesting. I, I mean, I was just reading an article by Mahir Desai, and he was on the podcast um, earlier this year. And he's a professor at Harvard, and um, <laughs> he he talks about personal finance, and he has a great book called "Wisdom of Finance." But, anyways, in this article, he's talking about optionality, and it, you know, it's interesting. In in the world, we think having all these options are like it's actually a good thing. But in reality, having all these options can almost like paralyze us to your point and just cause us to like not act. So in his article, he's kind of arguing against optionality and sometimes, you know, just eliminating the options or minimizing them so we could actually move forward. Because I, I think so many people get stuck. You know, I I think even, you know, if you're An older person, and maybe you hear this stuff and you're like, Look, I I get this stuff. Look, and it's great, but I didn't save when I was younger. You know, I still have a mortgage. My mortgage is going to last longer than my career. I don't have savings. I don't have 401k. And it's like, Oh my gosh, there's so many different things I could do. I'm just not going to do anything. And I'm going to let another year (laughs) pass and let another year pass. And then, you know, they just live in this state of stress and anxiety because it's like so much.
1: Oh, you're describing a majority of the population.
0: So what do you do That's that? it?
1: Uh, well, well, we try to do our small part, which is how do I remove that stress by really reduce? So where financial expertise come in, if you think of the difference between a person who has got a background in personal finance and the one who doesn't, is their ability to take what seems like an endless set of options and narrow it down to one or two choices.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And that that's really where all the value comes in um, because what you've done at that point uh, is you've given that individual the power to make a decision and the comfort to know that they're not missing anything. And that second piece is critical. It's almost like why we don't diagnose ourselves and we have, you know, a problem with our knee. If, if you go to and you Google up my my knee hurts and you Google that, there's a chance that someone, it's gonna say in there that you're dying, at least is one of the potential things. Sure. So, <laughs> right. So there's a hundred things there that it could be. So what do we do? We go to a physician, they look at it and they say, hey, I've seen this a bunch of times before. It's either this or this, try this and then come back in six weeks or whatever. And so all of a sudden that stress gets reduced significantly because some expert has shared with us that it is not what I Googled. There is a much narrower set. We don't have that equivalent in personal finance with the exception of financial advisors, which typically look at people with much higher net worths. For the main street population, where do you go for that? It's not a bank, right? You don't want to Google it. sure. So you're kind of stuck. And that's the gap that we're trying to fill. And we do believe it can be done at scale. Um, and for us, at least, you know, our hypothesis is, is that the best way to do this at scale is to find the most independent party that cares about the person. And that's the employer. That employer channel is such a powerful channel because they don't really, they want their employees to be financially healthy. They don't really have a dog in the fight as to what car you drive, what house you live in. Did you take a loan? Did you get, did you do a seven year arm or did you do a 30 year fixed? They don't really have a huge dog in the fight. They just want you to be healthy financially. And so because they have that objective or independent perspective, they are a great channel or Avenue to be able to provide this support.
0: No, that that's excellent. And, and I know you have like this quiz called uh, money moves and, and yep. you've, You've distributed that to employees at like Home Depot and and um, and other organizations like that. Why do you think this quiz is impactful?
1: Well, it's yeah, it's interesting that we uh, our business includes education, coaching, and then these these quizzes. And it, what we've found is is that different. There's kind of two answers to your question. First is different people are going to invest different levels of time in their financial health. Same with our physical health, right? Some people are going to do two-hour workouts in the gym. Other people are not. And so a coaching session generally takes about 30, 35 minutes. A class may take about 30 minutes, depending on the class, to an hour. Those are investments of people's time, no matter how good the content is. And what we found was with the quizzes, the quizzes provide value because they take three minutes. And in three minutes, I can show you what I think your next step should be. If you answer some information, and you don't even have to answer exact information, just some, give me some ballpark numbers on some various components from savings, debt, you name it, I can show you what your next step could be. And from there, you may graduate to wanting to talk to somebody, or you might be like, I just needed a verification of that. So what that quiz does is kind of everything we've talked about today. How do I narrow down the options into what's the thing that this thing is telling me to do next? And maybe I take that advice, maybe I don't, but I've got a perspective here, and I can follow that up with a coaching call. I can follow that up with a class, so on and so forth. We have another quiz that you didn't ask about, but it's, it's super interesting, which is around finding cash. Ultimately, when people need money, they need money. There isn't a well, you should think about your budget. That's not going to be a good answer for somebody who needs money. Sure. What we want to make sure of is when you need money, you're not just going to the first place you think about. Maybe it's like, I'm going to withdraw from my 401k, right? Maybe that's the first place you think about, seems to be the easiest, least friction, let me do it. What this quiz does is when you answer a bunch of questions, it spits out the sources of cash that you have available to you in order. So there's ones that we say, hey, these are the best, all the way down to your last resorts. And what we find is that the last resorts tend to have either the least friction or the most market. And that's a problem because the last resort is the one you're hearing about the most. Uh, And so what this quiz is going to do is it's not going to hand you cash, but what it is going to tell you is why don't you, Steve, go from one to 10. And instead of just starting at 10, see if any from one to nine are things you can do. And if you can, then you can avoid having to do 10, which is going to ultimately or potentially be predatory for your long-term
0: financial health. That makes sense. It sounds like a great tool to just pinpoint different things, explore options, and then reduces the clutter and everything else that that goes on out there. So you can just make a decision and and move forward. Let me ask you this, though. You mentioned on LinkedIn that we don't teach people how to play the game and it's the greatest injustice in capitalism. What do you mean by the game? What game are you referring to? And how do you teach people how to play this game?
1: Yeah. So Uh, The game that I'm referring to is the game of of capitalism. Capitalism is not a game where you're going to have a vast majority of people all having the same equitable levels of wealth and growth potential. It doesn't work that way. And so when I talk about the fact that I am a, you know, I believe in capitalism. I believe that that's a growth system. I believe that you can get all ships to rise in that system. However, where I think that we're deficient is, is that if we are going to run a capitalistic system the way we do, this should be required education from K through 12 and beyond. Mm-hmm. It should be it should be just as required as it is to, you know, that, that PE. We have PE every single year from elementary school. And so why didn't we not have financial education given that that's the system that people are walking out into and they are going to be praised to that system. That system is going to prey on them. And I don't think of it in a malicious terms but it's the way that capitalism works. And so you know. when I think of we don't teach people how to play the game, if you look at immigrants that come to this country, and I can only speak for my own story. I wrote an article in the Wall Street Journal in 2015 that went viral. And the article was entitled How My Mother Turned $8 Into a Million. And in that article, all I share is she did two things. Number one, she avoided everything she didn't understand. If she couldn't explain it to you, Steve, she wasn't going to do it, which to her actually was a lot of stuff because she didn't know the financial system. And then number two, she spent less than she made every single month for 40 years. And these are the concepts that everybody can win or people can disproportionately win in capitalism if they just follow those two principles. They're just very difficult to do. And when we don't educate people about those and they don't see them in their own household, uh, it's a really high bar expectation for us to assume, well, you should be accountable for your stuff. And if you don't do that, that's on you. I just don't buy that you know? Yeah. So that's kind of what I was talking about in terms of, it's just the greatest justice injustice in capitalism is we don't teach people about capitalism,
0: which is such a great point. I mean, yeah, because we, we get out of school and we get into the system and we don't even know the rules of the game or we don't know what the the game is that we're playing. And, and I absolutely agree. I mean, I'm pretty passionate about uh, this topic as well. And that's why, you know, I do this podcast, not necessarily on the, the personal finance level, Um, But just like this education on how can we be more strategic, more financially minded um, and be better leaders and and better stewards of the resources that we've been granted. I think that's really important.
1: You you saw this, Steve. I mean, the the one glaring example you may remember from your undergrad years as well is, what did you get for signing up for a credit card? A pizza or a t-shirt? One of those two, Right. right? How is it that you're signing people up for credit cards, students who have no income yet I'm going to hand you this free pizza. Just sign up here. And by the way, you can swipe this when you need something. Right. Now, if we're not going to be willing to teach the people the, the, the rules of the game, but that's allowed, that's a problem, right? And it's not allowed yeah. anymore, but that's a problem. And I think that's, that's where I get to kind of like where it feels imbalanced on I'm hoping we're playing a small role in, in balancing it.
0: Well, I I think what you're doing and what your mission is all about, like you're mentioning before is great. I think it's definitely needed in this world. It sounds like you're, you're out there really making an impact in a lot of people's lives. And I think that's excellent. So keep up the good work, keep spreading this message because it has the potential to change so many people's lives in so many different ways. So congratulations on what you're doing, Alok. And thank you so much for being a guest on today's show.
1: You got it, man. Thanks for having me.
0: Hey, thanks for tuning into the show. If there's any way I can be helpful to you and your business, or if you have feedback or ideas regarding this podcast, shoot me an email at contact at cultivar.com. I would love to connect all the best.